let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray uh, that you would receive glory and honor from us uh, this morning, particularly as we now come to study your word, this season of many distractions. We pray that you would uh, help us to focus now upon your word and so have our lives filled with all the riches of the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Do please sit down, my friends. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Tom Brady is one of the most successful quarterbacks in New England Patriots. He has won three Super Bowls. He has multi-million dollar mansions on either side by the coast of America. Here he is speaking in a 2005 interview on 60 Minutes. He said this, Why do I still think there's something greater out there for me? It's got to be more than this. I mean, this, this cannot be what it's all cracked up to be. However successful we become, we are left with a nagging feeling that life is more than this, that there's something we're missing, that life cannot be only about accumulation, achievement, and success. That something that we're missing is the glory of God. John saw this glory. So he writes in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you've been around Christian circles at all, you'll realize that normally when the word glory is used, it it refers to heaven. But actually, John, though, of course, that is included in his idea of it, John really has a bigger trajectory to glory than simply the beyond, the next life. He means something bigger than that. Let me try and explain that. John is using the word glory, actually, in a word that was typical of how it was used in his scriptures. That is what we call the Old Testament. Here's how one scholar describes the use of the word glory in the Old Testament It implies a visible, that is, seeable, visible, and powerful manifestation. Manifestation, that is, revealing, showing. It implies a visible and powerful manifestation of God to men. Glory, as it's used in the Old Testament. Actually, particularly, glory was used in reference to the temple in the Old Testament. And this is critically important to understand what John is saying here about glory. So, for instance, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and there he received the Ten Commandments, he was also given instructions about the tabernacle and the glory of God in a cloud was manifested, revealed at that moment. And then the tabernacle was built and we're told the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Uh, And then when the temple was built by Solomon, finally, uh, he dedicates it. And once again, the, uh, the glory of God fills the temple. This is all the background to what John is saying here. And then, as you may know in the story in the Bible, 
The Israelites disobey God, and God disciplines His people, and He sends them into exile. And as He does so, uh, Ezekiel describes in a sort of prophetic vision, describes how the glory of God leaves the temple. And then in a future vision, again, Ezekiel describes how that glory would one day return. So then here is John. John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you've got to understand that the the phrase dwelling among us there actually is a kind of tabernacling word. It's a temple word. So what John is saying is the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, or that Jesus was the temple. And John makes this connection really clear a little later in the story when he uh, records how Jesus says at one point that he will destroy the temple and then rebuild it again in, in three days. And the people who listen to it, uh, just this is amazing, you can't possibly do that, all these bricks, it took a long time to, to rebuild. And then John says, no, what Jesus meant was his own body. His death and resurrection, you see. So this is all part of the context. What John is saying, the word for glory sometimes is, 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 is describes as the Shekinah, the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. When John saw the glory, what he's saying is that he saw the word in flesh in Jesus, and that was the temple with the glory inserted. Now, I want to explain to us all this, and we're going to do this throughout our time in, in, this, in the Word this morning, for a particular purpose, a purpose that I think John had, as he, I hope you will see. That purpose is that we would be so filled with a vision, visible manifestation, manifestation of God's, uh, God's saving act to, his, to, to people, we so filled with a vision of Jesus' glory, Jesus as the temple with the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. We be so filled with that vision that, as it were, all the other desires that you and I struggle with and think are pleasurable and think are better than God and more desirable than God, all the other things that fill our vision of what life is about would just fade away. That's the purpose. First then, seeing Jesus' flesh. Each of these are part of this purpose. There's three points. This is the first one. Seeing Jesus' flesh. Look at the beginning of verse 14 with me, if you will. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a very striking word, flesh. Uh, You can compare it with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word became flesh. That's what John's prologue is about. The pre-existent eternal Word, in the beginning was the Word, that behind all of reality is a personal logos, the Word, and what John is saying, it became, he, personal, became flesh. That's what he's saying, and then he is saying that uh, this glory, not probably here in John's gospel about the transfiguration, uh, John doesn't describe the transfiguration in his gospel, no, here he's talking particularly about the flesh of Jesus, that's the focus, the humanity of Jesus, the, the physical, the flesh, the flesh, 
the weakness of Jesus, if, if you may, the Word in flesh. So the dwelling, the tabernacle, the temple, the place for the glory of God, John is saying, is the human flesh of the Word of God. Now, when you think about it, that is a thrillingly dangerous thing to say. And also when you think about it, it becomes powerfully comforting. Now, you see, when you and I think of glory and temple, we tend to think of sort of very grand and distant things, gold, stained glass, all that kind of thing. But here, the temple and the glory in the temple, what John is wanting us to think of is Jesus' flesh. So that is, as sometimes theologians say, imminent, that is here and now, present, but it's also in flesh, physicality, humanity, touchability, flesh. I really encourage you to think about this when you think of the glory of God, to think of the human flesh of Jesus. Think of him And John, I'm just going to now trace out some of the themes that John does about this flesh. Think of Jesus as he was persuaded by his mother to perform the first miracle at a wedding, turning water into wine, where we're told he first revealed his glory. It's a very human thing to do, isn't it? People are at a wedding and there's not enough wine to go around. He turns the water into wine. Perhaps would it be enough to throw him out of some institutions? I don't know. Think of him healing the man born blind. In the instance in John's gospel, he doesn't just say, you know, see. We're told that he uses his own spit. (laughs) That's pretty flashy. Um, Or think of him, uh, again, John traces all these things as glory and flesh. In his gospel, think of him washing his disciples' feet. Now, you know, many preachers have joked about how much they must have stank to high heaven when, when you think about that. But though it's a sort of well-worn trope, the fact that it's well-worn shouldn't stop us from thinking about it. You know, all that dirt and grime under the, you know, the fungus between the, the, thing, the, the toes. Or think of the disciple leaning against Jesus at the Last Supper, the, the beloved disciple. You know, some cultures are more touchy-feely than others. You know, I was talking about someone, with someone this week how, you know, Amer- American culture is a little more physically close in the way that they relate than some other cultures. Some are even more physically close. You know, in English culture, you, you try and stay as far away as sort of possible, <laughs> you know. Um, when, I, when we first came here, I was hugged so much by the church I was serving, I practically had to tell them, I know you like me, but, you know, you know one hug a day is enough, you know. And, <laughs> um, here's a man hug. Or perhaps if you're struggling this Christmas, think of the well-known shortest verse in the Bible. You know what that is, don't you? Jesus wept. Actual physical tears. 
or, of course, most of all, the scars. Thomas, you know, put your hands here. Touch. And whether or not he actually did or being asked to do was enough for him to fall on his knees and worship, we don't know, but he was, there it was, physical, touch. See, I wonder sometimes whether our vision of the glory of Jesus has become insufficiently strong to thrill us again because we've made Jesus less than flesh, less than human. Of course, he's more than human, and we'll get to that in a moment, but he's not less than human. His physicality, his humanity, another way that the Bible picks up this theme is talking about him as the great high priest. That's not meant to make Jesus seem sort of very religious and distant. The point of that, of a priest, is that a priest comes alongside and identifies and is a go-between. And so he's a great high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. He weeps where we weep, etc. And maybe you need to think about this if you are beginning to downplay your own ministry. You want a glory-filled ministry. You're a Christian. You serve in the church. You want glory. Uh, but glory can be, if Jesus is modeling what that means, it can also be in flesh. Glory is more than pulpit ministry. It's also scar ministry and hospital ministry and home visitation. I love uh, Oliver Goldsmith's poem about a, uh, a pastor, a country pastor. Of course, we're in the city, but, you know, in the sort of Chicago area in general. But this is about a country pastor and the parts of it that I don't particularly like, but this bit I love. Listen to this. He tried each art, reproved each dull delay. This is about the pastor. Allured to brighter worlds and led the way beside the bed. This is the hospital bed where someone's dying. Beside the bed where parting life was laid and sorrow, guilt, and pain by turns dismayed. Someone's struggling with their eternal destiny. Uh, Goldsmith says, the reverent champion stood. So he's not in the pulpit now. He's right by the hospital bed. And at his control, despair and anguish fled. The struggling soul, that's the sick patient, Comfort came down the trembling wretch to raise, this is the patient again, the sick person, and his last faltering accents whispered praise. Well, perhaps your ministry is hospital visitation. It feels very flashy, not very glory-like. But uh, it can express the Shekinah glory of God in a temple, in a tabernacle, at a hospital, in flesh. And perhaps the reason why you cannot this season enter into the meaning of Christmas is because you don't think Jesus really cares. And you've heard so many sermons about the glory of Christmas. And perhaps you need to remember the flesh of Jesus. And the indignity of a baby born in a manger for you. Well, then, uh, Jesus' glory itself, second. So look with me at the next part of verse 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. 
Now, I wonder then, this is the glory that uh, John saw as an eyewitness and is now hoping that we will see through his words. And I wonder then what vision fills our eyes. What is it that appears in our vision as we shut our eyes and go to sleep at night? What is the last thing we see? What do we dream about? Some things that we see are so compelling, they sort of are burnt onto our mental retina, so to speak. And we cannot get them out of our visual... um, Sight, our mindset, is encapsulated in that kind of vision. I don't know whether you've ever played Candy Crush Saga. I confess I have. And um, I discovered this week that uh, Candy Crush Saga earns an estimated three quarters of a million dollars every single day. That puts our budget needs into a different light, doesn't it? 500 million people have installed Candy Crush to date. 150 billion games of Candy Crush have been played every day. 30%, one in three, say they are addicted to the game. I'm not addicted. It's not that interesting. But But one person highly involved with this game has admitted, and when I close my eyes to go to sleep, I can see still all the Candy Crush shapes like a virtual Candy Crush game. I wonder what you see when you close your eyes. What is your vision? I want this evening that when you close your eyes, you will see Jesus as revealed through John's witness in the Bible. And I think that Jesus is who John saw when he closed his eyes to sleep. Certainly when he was given a vision, that's what he saw. On Patmos, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. His head and hair were wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, like glowing in a furnace. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Well, when you see that, that's going to be your response, isn't it? Like a 10-pin bowling ball. (laughs) Crash to the ground like a chainsaw cutting down a tree. Timber! Like a man knocked out with one punch. Flat fallen on the ground at his feet as though dead. John had seen the glory of Jesus, and he wrote his gospel to record that glory. He first manifested his glory at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. His disciples put his faith in him. What this glory is and how Jesus has given it became a matter of discussion from then until, ironically, the man that Jesus had healed, who was born blind to show his glory, is asked by the Pharisees to give glory to God, which was a solemn charge to tell the truth by ironic because in being no longer blind, he was a living testimony to seeing the glory of God that they could not see. He was giving glory to God by the fact that he had been healed. May we give glory to God and see the glory of Jesus. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was to give glory 
to God. The time had come for the glory of God, Jesus tells them, as he prepares for his death and resurrection. Isaiah saw this glory as he saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple, tabernacled, templed now in Jesus. This glory. And when Jesus, Judas went out to betray Jesus, Jesus then immediately said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Why? Because his death and resurrection was coming. And so Jesus prays, chapter 17, verse 1, When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And he prays that we would share that glory with him one day. And the hour comes, the word that John uses to describe the passion from John 17 onwards, the hour that is the hour of glory as he is crucified, died, buried, risen again. And then on Patmos, as John receives his vision of the glory of Jesus that he records in the book of Revelation, he is taken to the throne room of heaven and what does he see? Standing on the center of the throne is a lamb looking as if he had been slain. Because these marks, these scars, this flesh of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, well, Jesus then has the power to accomplish God's purposes. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. I won't sing it to you because you walk out the door if I tried, but... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders, they fell down and worshipped. Yes, when you see this vision, it will change your life. They fell down because they were expressing the surrender of their other desires, ambitions, For the one above all to be desired, Jesus. Now, if you want something as someone else other than Jesus, my friends, I don't think you've really seen his glory. You haven't really grasped who John says that he is. After all, does a man exchange a million dollars for 50 cents? Does a, a, a teenage girl training to be an Olympic star at the gymnastics train an Olympic gold for a trinket at a fairground? Which actor would swap an Oscar for a part in a B movie? No one. Who would trade Jesus for something else when we really see who Jesus is? I think if we really this morning saw Jesus through John's recorded word as he wants us to see him now, it would be all we could do to prevent us all from coming out into the aisles and falling flat on our faces. I wouldn't be standing. I hope you wouldn't. No wonder when the wise men saw Jesus, baby Jesus, what did they do? They didn't bounce him on the knee. They didn't play peekaboo. What did they do? Do you remember? They fell down and worshipped. They fell down and worshipped, just like the elders. 
And some people say the two things are not written by the same person, Revelation and John. All other desires fade away as we see the vision of Jesus' glory in flesh. Now, third and finally, and I think most remarkably, I hope you'll think it is, I think it is, uh, the last part of verse 14. John has described this wonderful glory, the temple, and the glory in the temple. And then he says, and often we just slide over it, but I really don't think we should. He says then, full of grace and truth. Now, I want you to compare that with verse 16. And perhaps you'll agree with me, we shouldn't just slide over it. Verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received. So here we are, Jesus full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we have received. This fullness of Jesus is the overflowing grace and truth which we who believe in him receive. Now who could slide over that? So Jesus is full of God, he's fully God, and of that fullness we receive. The best illustration I came across of this was by the inimitable Charles Spurgeon. His illustration was this. He'd recently been to Italy, perhaps on one of his occasional visits to warmer climates towards the end of his life, where he would leave damp, chilly London for his health, uh, and who would blame him? It was a Sunday, and he gathered with a few for a simple service, and then he walked up a hill. And he describes this illustration going up the hill and seeing all the different pictures of different saints and all the rest, all the great heroes of the Christian faith. And he gets to the top of the hill and there's an English-like garden in Italy, which he particularly finds fascinating. And so he goes in and then he sees a church and he goes into the church. And then he notices that in the church, high up in the ceiling, there's swung a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how the Baptist Spurgeon felt about that, but obviously he felt pretty positive about it. And so here we go. And he said around this representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with statues of the prophets all with their fingers pointing up to him. He says, there was Isaiah with a scroll in his left hand in which was written, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Further on stood Jeremiah and on his scroll was written, behold and see if there ever was sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me. And so he goes on all around the church, all these different heroes. And then he says, right at the top in big, big letters was this, well-known words, Moses And all the prophets spoke and wrote concerning him. Now, I want you, like those original hearers of that Spurgeon illustration, again to imagine that scene. And replace with all the different prophets, Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, include those. Think of all your heroes. I don't know who they would be, but you know, and they're right now in your minds. In a great circle... And every single one of them has their arms raised and is pointing to Jesus. In him is the fullness of God. And of that fullness we have received. Who could slide over that ending to the verse? I wonder whether that's what you need to focus on this Christmas. Not just the flesh of Jesus, the weakness of Jesus, if you like, that he touched earth with feet divine and therefore can weep along with you in your pain. Not just the glory of Jesus in the vision at the island of Patmos in Revelation. But even more than, well, not more than that, but to understand that, (laughs) the fullness of Jesus, 
his voice like roaring waters. The sense of the flooding fullness of Jesus. The sufficiency of Jesus, the bounty of Jesus, the overflowing grace and truth of Jesus. I was amazed to discover this week news of a Chinese man who cut his hand off during a work accident and then found a hospital that would sew it back on. And in order to prepare the the stump for an operation, time was needed, and so the doctor sewed the hand first back onto the ankle of the man. You can see the pictures, pretty gruesome. Subsequently, it was sewn back onto his wrist. It's not the first time this doctor's performed a similar operation. One time, he sewed the person's hand first onto his stomach. There are no pictures of that, I've discovered, to give it a blood supply while the stump healed enough for the next operation to sew it onto his arm and reconnect all the nerve endings. Amazing, amazing. I wonder whether some of us are a bit like that before the final part of the operation. We're saved. We've rushed to the doctor. We've managed to find someone who will save the hand that has been cut off through our own sin. And the hand is reattached, but to our ankle, as it were. Somehow we stop short of falling at the feet of Jesus in the vision of his glory. Because for us, Jesus is only for a certain part of our body, a part of our lives. He's for church. We segmented him. He's not connected to our life fully. He comes out of our mouth when we sing our songs, but he's not yet penetrated to our bank balance when we pass the plate. He comes out of our mouth well enough in the prayer meeting, but when we talk to our children at home, he seems a very different kind of Jesus, a harsh, scolding Jesus. Oh yes, we talk to a pastor and we sound very pious, but when we talk to our wife, that same pastor would blush to hear the tones we use. What do we need, you and I? We need what John is offering. A vision of the glory of Jesus in all his fullness. He's not a half-hearted God who only wishes to give us a little bit of something. He wants us to have his fullness, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. Ask him for the fullness of the glory of God. He won't disappoint you. If we had time, we could ask people here one after another, stand up and tell how God has changed their lives, how despite what they have done, they've been accepted and given new vision and energy and joy. His fullness, not partness or halfness or little bitness, but fullness. Of his fullness we have received. I want you so to see the glory of God, the Word in flesh, the glory of fullness, that you will want or desire nothing higher than him. I want that for myself. I want it for all of us. I want everything else to fade into the background as Jesus, like the brightness of the sun. Think of that picture. The brightness of the sun in all its brilliance. Have you ever tried staring into the sun? Jesus takes up all your visual field of your mind. I cannot put it better than the great Augustine. He said this, But were not this necessary in point of duty, it were absolutely so in point of interest and prudence. 
For when the heart of man is not fixed upon this object, namely Jesus, it is not fixed anywhere but moves about perpetually from one thing to another, seeking rest where it is never to be found. Now the reason why it cannot meet with satisfaction, and perhaps you have not met with satisfaction, the reason why it cannot meet with satisfaction in any of these frail and transitory matters which captivate its affections is because the soul is above them all. And I would just want to put in there, we are made for more. All of us, the whole whole part, everything about us. And in a condition so excellent that no good but the supreme good can answer our desires or prove our adequate happiness. In other words, we could just say this, nothing and no one else can fulfill you other than the filling of the fullness of God, that is, Jesus. Now, when you have that, your life will change. You will uh, give yourself to service, outreach, mission, commitment to community. You will love the church, which God knows is far from perfect. If you find a perfect church, tell me, and we can both avoid joining it, so we both do not spoil it. You'll be able to love the person in the pew uh, next to you, you wonder whether it's secretly a little Pharisee and they wonder whether you are secretly a little prostitute and neither are true. You'll be able to survive another holiday Christmas with your family. Let's be real here. It's not always easy, is it? Because you'll be filled with the vision of Jesus, a vision of glory. Uh, Perhaps you like the show Downton Abbey. I have heard that there are some men who do. When I have watched episodes uh, with my wife, I have wondered as the source of its attraction. It is glorious, that house, isn't it? Aristocracy. I have something far better to offer you than a mansion called Downton Abbey, namely the glory of the Jesus, glory of Jesus Himself, as revealed in His Word, which one day, if you believe in Him, you will share. And that uh, Tom Brady and all the other uh, folk like him who have accomplished much but still feel as if they have not found what they're looking for. That is a greater glory than any number of Super Bowl trophies. They are just pale shadows in by comparison. That is worth giving your life for. That was John's experience. He was called the beloved disciple, a cousin of Jesus's. He followed Jesus. He breached Jesus. He wrote about Jesus. He became an elder statesman of the young church. Perhaps that's something you could aspire to in all humility, that you could be a John filled with grace and truth, modeling that vision to the younger generation, writing books, preaching sermons, becoming an elder statesman in the church, doing life on life in your small group, modeling honest business practices, being a faithful spouse, a loving father, 
You know that John alone of all the disciples remained near Jesus at the cross. So captured was he by the vision of the hour, as he described it, that he did not want to miss a moment. You know he was given a special responsibility at the cross to care for Mary. Perhaps that's your expression of seeing the vision of the glory of Jesus this Christmas, caring for a homebound, a widow, a mother who has lost her son. John was also a great discipler. He trained Polycarp, who trained in Irenaeus, great leaders in the early church. Perhaps that's your expression. You will be a mentor to many. And you won't write books. But they will write books about you. Well, I don't know what it is. But if you have this vision of the glory, you will be filled with grace and truth because of this vision. And it will change your life. I pray that will be so for all of us. Let's uh, pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do want to, we do love you. We do want to see you for who you are through your word. We realize in this world we we will not fully, and yet your glory has been revealed and is recorded. And we pray that we would, by your word, through your Spirit, have a sense, a sight, a vision of that glory. Uh, those are eyes blazing like fire, those, those feet made of bronze glowing in a furnace, those tears that baby in a manger. holding seven stars in its hand before whom the wise men fell down. Would you give us the wisdom, Lord Jesus, to fall on our feet before you in worship? And so fill us with your vision for who you are, And so satisfy us with your fullness. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.